2: The goal was never to have a 1990s teenager not
0: hold hands with a woman. Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This podcast, a weekly show dedicated to highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. I'm your host, Carling, a Canadian, queer-identifying, 30-something-year-old providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard. Hey guys, I hope you are having an amazing day, whatever day and wherever it is that you are listening from. I thought I would pop in this week and do a little intro. There are some pretty exciting things taking place. You may have already heard, if you've listened to last week's episode or any of the past episodes, that I now finally have ads in my episodes, which, listen, I get it. As somebody who listens to a lot of podcasts, ads can be super annoying. But as a podcaster, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the ad revenue. And just it really is opening up a lot of opportunity for me to continue to grow. So if you heard an ad anywhere in any of the past episodes, I would just love it if you shoot me a message and let me know they're called programmatic ads and so it's based on geography and all sorts of things. My partner Lindsay did not get any ads when she listened to last week's episode and I know somebody else in the same city that listened that got four so like throughout the entire episode. So it's pretty exciting and that is also a nice segue for me to talk about the Patreon because I can finally say I've been joking for years now that the Patreon is going to be a place not only where you can get exclusive content, behind the scenes, more information about my life, but you can also get ad-free episodes if you are like me and don't like ads in your favorite podcasts, and you're looking for more stories. My own personal stories are on there, and all sorts of things. Join the Patreon. It's really fun. It's it's a monthly commitment, so you can sign up for. One month you can sign up for a few and then take a few months off. It's really flexible and I try my best to make it worth your while. So if you are interested, go to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. Check out the different tiers, see if there's one that floats your boat and let me know what you think. I think that's it. I think we'll just get into this week's episode. I really hope you like it. I had so much fun talking with Paige and If you haven't checked out her earlier episode, it is unrelated, but equally as amazing. It is called Born with Ectopic Ureters, Paige's Story. It was such a joy to have her, and I'm really excited to have her back and talk some more. Uh, Enjoy. Let's get on with it. Hello, Paige. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Just hanging out with my cat. I love that he just heard me say record, I think, and then he was like, I should show up. He looks like such a good cat.
2: He's very good. He recently got, he has a neighborhood bully. One of the neighbor's cats is literally jumping into our backyard to try to attack him. And the neighbor is very much not interested in
0: doing anything about it, so...
2: He's going to oh. need some deep therapy.
0: <laughs> yeah. If he wants to come on the podcast and talk about yeah, his backyard definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat about all this. Yeah, I'm so excited. We had you last year. We had you on to talk about having ectopic ureters, which yes. I never thought I would even know about, but it's so interesting. <laughs> But since your life has changed a lot, you got married. Well, I don't know a lot, but you got married. (laughs) Yes, I also moved to Nashville with my husband. My My husband
2: got a, a job at a university here. There's been a lot going on.
0: That's amazing. How is Nashville? I've always wanted to go. It's a really cool city, and we're in,
2: like, a very hip area. We're in East Nashville. It's very expensive, but it's totally worth it, like, Just being within walking distance of all these music venues and so much good food. Like, it's really cool.
0: Oh, that's really cool. And it's not nearly as hot as Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been to Texas never in the summer, but like on the ends of the seasons. Mm -hmm. And it's very hot. Yeah, it's not pretty.
2: We got married at the end of October and it was still like 85 degrees
0: outside. Yeah, that's very warm. Which you do y'all use... Are you in Celsius up there? I can't remember. Yeah, we use Celsius, but I always know 90 is very hot. That's how I remember it. I think 90 or 95 is about 40 degrees Celsius. So I yes. always say, I'll think to myself, like, how close is it to that? And then I have an idea.
2: Yeah, it's normally, it gets up to 100 to 105 or 6 in Texas, depending on where um, you are. It is not pleasant.
0: Ever since we first talked, I've had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to talk to you about religion and purity culture specifically, because Mm -hmm. you have a really interesting background and education, and I think nobody ultimately signed up for purity culture. My background, for
2: anyone listening who doesn't know me personally, I (laughs) grew up baptized in a Methodist church. We went there for a little while regularly on Sundays, and then just as we got older, we stopped going but my brother and I both went to Episcopalian elementary schools where we had like chapel every day and then a Catholic high school where we had mass every Wednesday. When I was 16, I decided to start going to church on my own and went to a church down the street that was a former Church of Christ, now non-denominational church. And it was a mega church, like 1,600 people per service, five services per weekend. The youth group was like 500 kids. And like people fainting? (laughs) It wasn't like, so Church of Christ, I can give a rundown. I don't know how familiar familiar you are with like Christian denominations.
0: Not at all. I just hear mega church and I picture ladies in fancy hats fainting. Got it. So
2: I a lot of times think of churches, and this is not in any way like a theological thing that people uh, uh, actually do. This is just how my brain works. I think of churches on a scale from like Catholic church to Pentecostal because Pentecostals are the ones who sometimes are like handling snakes and doing faith healings. You look shocked. Yeah, no, they handle snakes because there's one Bible verse where The Bible says you can handle snakes and not be feared of fear of poisoning because God is with you. And many of those pastors have died of, you'll never guess, snake bites. (laughs) If you think of one of the big aspects of like religion in general is called church polity, and that's what is a church's relationship with their denomination. So the Catholic church is pretty easy to understand. There's the pope, cardinals, archbishops, bishops, priests. And it's very regimented and it all goes down, up, down. So if the Pope makes a decision about a change in policy, that's going to go and spread to every church. Some church denominations are like Presbyterians. They're more committee based. So oh. you, like you might have, I think it's like a, syn- a Presbyterian, a synod, just kind of weird words, but essentially like a collection of Presbyterian churches and leaders which will be a combination of the leadership as well as the congregation, they'll make a lot of the decisions. So five, let's say five churches get together and they say, hey, we want to affirm gay marriage. Then they'll go to the next higher level and say, hey, we want to approve gay marriage. Then a bunch of those committees will come together until it's a policy at the top. So those are the two typical church polity structures. And that's important because it means that a congregation like a Catholic church is going to be a lot harder to have different, like when you go to a Catholic church, you could go to a Catholic church across Mm -hmm. the world and have similar theology, similar messaging, similar programming. Then the last type of polity is the Baptist elder type of polity. So for example, the Baptists are part of different conventions. So you can have a church that's a part of multiple conventions. You can be in the general Baptist convention, the Southern Baptist convention, the Texas Baptist convention, all in the same church. Whereas a lot of other denominations, you have to pick one. They, for example, a Baptist church could say, hey, we want to affirm gay marriage. And they decide as like the church elders, the people who have been there the longest put together a committee to decide this. And then they go to the Southern Baptist convention and say, hey, this is what we're going to do the Southern Baptist Convention says, okay, we're not cool with that. You're kicked out of our convention. You're losing funding, but you'll still be a Baptist church because you're a member of these other congregations, if that kind of makes sense.
0: Wow. That's
2: like a spider web. Exactly. When you have a church that is like a Baptist church or a non-denominational church, a non-denominational church is not affiliated with any of these conventions. They don't get funding from any of these conventions. They just get funds from donations within their own church, those are a lot easier to become churches of personality where it's really like the head pastor, that's the guy, and we're all going to follow him and whatever he says goes. Whereas when you're in a church and if that pastor leaves, they have to like search far and wide for a pastor who will come. In a Catholic church, if let's say a priest dies, they'll just bring in another priest and a little more regimented. So it seems like it doesn't make that much of a difference, but when it comes to things like sexual abuse mishandling, sometimes it's easier to have policies implemented far and wide from, let's say, the Catholic Church that that they can implement and know this will definitely be implemented in every church. Then if you're in a non-denominational church, you probably don't have the resources from the higher-up organizations to implement those structures, and you have to bring somebody else in. So it it has long-lasting ramifications without necessarily people really understanding it when they're walking in a church building.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. My sister, her ex is going for an annulment, even though she, they're mm. Catholic, even though they were married and have four children. But he wants to get married again in the Catholic church. And so she was approached from the church people. I don't know who. Um, so
2: was he married previously and now he's trying to get married
0: to someone else? or is Yeah, so him and my sister yeah. got married in a Catholic church. Got but it. He he just pretended that he wasn't having an affair and being... Classic. It, yeah, <laughs> classic, totally. She had to be, like, interviewed, and it's going up the ladder, like, really far up. Like, it's going to be a year or more before a decision is made about getting their marriage and all, just so he can get yeah. married again in the Catholic Church.
2: Which the Catholic Church, I believe, is the only one to my knowledge maybe something like anglicans or episcopalians require it but they're the only ones who require you to get like an annulment through the church if you want to get remarried my aunt actually she married a man who was catholic and they ended up divorcing and separating and then they ended up reconciling like 5 years later and getting remarried but because they didn't have their marriage annulled in the church they didn't get another wedding catholic wedding they just had oh. to do the legal side of it which is interesting because the church still views them as being married. Oh, weird. That's interesting. Yeah. So when it comes say to like... not weird. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, it's totally weird. It's weird. <laughs> the kind of purity culture is something that's interesting because its history, we can get into its history in a second, but it's something that spreads across denominations. So you might have a Southern Texas Catholic church that puts a lot of purity culture in their theology, whereas you might have a New York City Catholic church that doesn't really focus on those things. And so typically purity culture, there's a concept of chastity in religion. And they normally hone in on two different Bible verses. One is in Thessalonians, which is Old Testament, and one is in, I believe it's in Corinthians. The one in the Old Testament says very specifically, no sexual stuff outside of marriage. The one in the New Testament says you should not take place any sexual immorality like you don't have a lustful eye don't have all these things no sexual immorality and so because those phrasings are so vague the like 1990s really had a resurgence of hey we're not just gonna say you shouldn't have sex until marriage we're gonna say you shouldn't kiss somebody until marriage or you shouldn't hold hands with somebody until marriage Or you shouldn't date, you should court, which is different. You could have churches that have that theology that don't put that sort of pressure on that theology. And what it spiraled into is a kind of culture of shame. And so much of it is put on the woman because men are viewed as these like sexual creatures who they, some of the metaphors they use in a lot of these Books or in these sermons are that men are just animals and women are considered to be the gatekeeper of sex. So it's on the woman if she's wearing something skimpy and a guy gets turned on, that's on her for causing her brother to stumble, is the phrase that right. they often use. Whereas if the man does it, it's, oh, that's not your fault. Regardless yeah. of the fact that Jesus says, if you're hand causes you to sin cut it off if your eye causes you to sin poke your eyes out that part so none of it is actually based in the bible this is all like these this spiraling and spiraling of people trying to figure out how to reinforce these kind of chastity things to the degree
0: and going back even so with those two testaments old and new what's the purpose why does somebody specifically women or females, have to be virgins at marriage. Because so I've heard a lot of talk about that virginity is actually just a construct. and Oh, absolutely yeah. construct. And I'll bring up an interesting counsel on that. But the purpose
2: in the Bible, in the Old Testament, among those verses are also things about not storing your cheese and your meat together or not having specific types of haircuts. If you think about it from an Old Testament perspective, waiting to have sex until marriage was almost a protection for the women because they could obviously didn't have accurate forms of birth control. They could be stuck with these kids that then the man who impregnated her would go get married to someone else and not take care of her. So much of scripture is about power and oppression and protecting those who are disempowered. The New Testament When they talk about sexual immorality, that verse is talking a lot about men who would lust after women and talking about how, hey, if these men who would cheat on their wives and they would say, hey, if you even look at a woman with lust, you are committing adultery. So, again, that was really focused on men and males. A lot of it is supposed to be liberative and it's supposed to be freeing and protect women. In the same way, in the Old Testament, there's laws about um If a man and a woman get married and the husband dies, the husband's brother is supposed to take on the responsibility of marrying that woman to take care of her. And that was fully for financial protection and legal protection and things like that. Obviously, today, we don't look at that law as Christians or even the vast majority of Jewish communities is not going to look at that law and say, oh, verbatim, that's what we have to do now. But back in the day, it was preventing things like STDs. It was preventing things like unwanted pregnancies. The Israelites were often in really dire circumstances where they were experiencing pretty extreme poverty and drought and famine. And so it was a way to counteract those. The goal was never to have a 1990s teenager not hold hands with a woman.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's so interesting. I never thought about it from the aspect of what else could it have been protecting that makes so much sense. So, like, where did things go wrong? I always want to just, like, so, blame <laughs> straight white men.
2: Always a good bet. But <laughs> one of one of the interesting places where you see this rear its head is there was a council that I believe Augustine was a part of. And, of course, it's all men because those are the only people yeah. with opinions. And essentially what was happening is they had these almost nun-type figures who were taking care of the temple. It was a very sacred job. You had to be virginal. You had to not have had sex, those sorts of things. This church and this city got invaded, and many of those nuns were raped. And so they had this council together saying, okay, are they virgins? And that is when there became a distinction in, at this council. And this is not, oh, this is absolute theology that everybody believes. But essentially, Augustine had said, okay, there is spiritual virginity and there is physical virginity. So these women who were raped, they're not physically virgins, but they are spiritual virgins. That said, they still can't do the same duties as the ones who weren't raped. The ones who weren't wow. raped had access to being participating more in, in different things. You think about that 10,000 years later... And you start thinking about, oh, virtual virginity, spiritual virginity, That's that includes not looking at pornography, not thinking about sex, not masturbating, not holding somebody's hand. That is how it manifests over and over time.
0: So I really thought, and maybe this is way, by design, that purity culture really came to this, like, I get the sense that it's about the... Man getting a virgin, there's something, I don't know, like aspirational. That's the goal because she's more pure. Where did yeah. that messaging start to go?
2: Yeah, obviously
0: that still existed
2: a thousand years ago. And that's completely rooted in patriarchy and patriarchal belief systems. And I think a lot of times people are going to take patriarchal beliefs and say, OK, I can't justify these beliefs rationally, so I'm going to use God to justify it. One of the interesting things was in the 90s, they tried to flip it on its head and say, no, both men and women are supposed to be waiting until marriage. But you still saw a difference in treatment between these like men and women. For example, purity balls were a huge thing in the 90s and still oh, continue yeah. to this day. Where it might be an 11- a 12-year-old girl who would wear a white dress, her dad would walk her down the aisle, and she would sit and agree to wait until marriage and wait for her husband. Think about it. These 11- and 12-year-olds, they don't know what sex really is. (laughs) Yeah, their sexual maturity hasn't even kickstarted. Yeah. Your children. You don't have a desire to have sex. So you're like, yeah, this is easy. Why would would I want that? And you also don't know what it is. And your dad is like, oh, here's a pretty dress and a nice pretty ring. And all my focus and attention for this
0: beautiful event that we're throwing for you.
2: Exactly. But something that I want to bring up is that Even if you're, like, kind of bringing in my story. My parents did not tell me to get a purity ring. They didn't encourage it. They had said, like, wait until marriage, yada, yada. My dad's a divorce attorney, so he thinks about it very logically. And he always told me, don't have sex before marriage. But if you do and you get pregnant and you have a baby, for the love of God, don't just marry the father because you think you have to. Because so many of the divorces he saw were people who got married because they got pregnant. And he's like, that child is never going to make your relationship problems go away. They just give you new problems. And you shouldn't force yourself to be with somebody that you really shouldn't be with just because of kind of propriety, which was very progressive for my father. Coming from it from my perspective, picture this. You're a teenager in the South in the mid-2000s. What you're seeing on TV is... Just like the Hardys and Carl's Jr. commercials. Did y'all get those in Canada? All we're seeing on TV is like this objectification of women as slabs of meat. And you're seeing these TV shows and you're seeing on MTV how these men sleep with these women and they throw them away. Like, it's just really horrible. Like, there was no... And even my experience in school around middle school boys was very objectifying. And people in high school, like somebody would send their boyfriend a naked photo and it would get sent around the entire city. And so that was my interaction with men. And so when you're given the idea of, oh, I could date somebody and not feel a pressure to have sex, let them know from the get-go that I'm not going to have sex with you and I'm not going to do these things. And I can say it's because it's a part of my faith. Maybe I can have these genuine connections that are not based on my own objectification. And so a lot of girls, when they were making that decision as they were older, it was based on the experience of being objectified and being able to say, hey, I can weed out these guys who are just going to use me for sex by having this ring that says you're never going to get that until you're ready to commit to that, if that makes sense. I think a lot of times people forget that is that Yes, it's about like this steeped culture and being stuck in a church cycle and gendered expectations and all that. But a lot of times it's a protective mechanism and it's a protective strategy. I even remember buying myself a purity ring and deciding this commitment and whatnot, thinking I'll wait until sex for marriage, but I might do other stuff, but I'm never going to tell a guy I'm dating that I would because I was terrified of doing something I didn't want. So it was this kind of intersection between a fear of sexual violence or a fear of objectification and the religious element. What I didn't realize is that purity culture was just objectifying in another way. After I was sexually assaulted in college, I would date guys who would say, I'm so sorry, I can't deal with that. I, it's, this is very important to me, and I think this is biblical, and yada, yada. And because it was not me who was being seen, I was being seen as this character cookie cutter, oh, woman of God, hasn't had sex, pure, yada, yada, yada. Instead of being objectified as like the sexy lamp lady, you're being objectified as the good church girl. And if you go outside that mold, you're not respected, you don't get dates, you are chastised by your husband, etc.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So I heard something recently, I can't remember who said it, but she was saying the damage that purity culture did for her, she got married and she was a virgin, was that she had such a physical reaction, Mm -hmm. everything in her body said, I should not have sex with my husband, because you're told, avoid everything at all costs, but then the night Mm -hmm. of your wedding, you're supposed to forget all of that, and be this sexual creature. Yeah. To please your husband and have sex all the time and enjoy it and feel good and like it and be celebrated for it.
2: Yeah. So I know many people who have had similar experiences because I know, obviously, many people who have waited until marriage. And a couple of things have happened. Number one, I had a friend. This technically wasn't her after getting married, but she went to a gynecological appointment when she was like 20. And she was so disconnected from her body and so disconnected because you're told to shut off all those feelings that they don't exist and even thinking about sex is sinful. And she went to the gynecologist for the first time when she was 20 and as soon as she was touched, she was brought back to memories of her being sexually abused as a child that she had fully oh. repressed. So I can only imagine if she hadn't, if she had gotten married before that, what kind of experience that would have been. There are women, like you say, who have the experience of, oh, all of a sudden I'm supposed to turn this on like a light switch. And if you're in something like the Catholic church, the Catholic church believes that sex should always be for the purpose of procreation. If you think about it, this was what I was trying to tell my friend who was getting married because she was very nervous because she had done nothing more than ever kiss somebody. And there's this huge expectation of having sex on your wedding night. And I was like, Picture if you were saw a 16-year-old who had only kissed somebody and the next day they suddenly were expected to have sex. That's not a normal human sexuality. Like, you do have to build up to that. And I think the other problem is that so much of purity culture has been saying that, hey, if you have sex before marriage, your sex life after marriage is going to be horrible and terrible and doomed to fail. And on the flip side, if you wait until marriage, you'll have sex and it'll be perfect. And- That's just not the experience. You're never good at something on the first try, just like regardless. So there's all this buildup and all this buildup. And when you have something where you are signing pledge cards that are about waiting for sex until marriage and you're writing letters to your future husband and you're wearing a purity ring that gets taken off, right? As you get engaged, it is so heavily built up that so many people were incredibly disappointed by it. And then it's also hard because like, They can't have – it's hard to have those sexual thoughts about your partner when you've shut those off. The third thing I've seen is I recently met a guy who's very sweet, and he is in the process of a divorce with his wife because they both waited until marriage, and they got married, had sex, realized that they were both gay. Oh, wow. The reason being – because, and he said, he was like, it should have been pointed out to me that, wow, not having sex before marriage is super easy. Like, I have no desire. Wow, I've got fortitude, God. And then they get to that point point they're like, oh, it's so easy because I don't have sexual attraction to this person. <laughs> um, oh, no. And so anytime I meet super religious people, I'm like, think about the heartbreak that you could have prevented if you, even if they had waited until marriage, If there had been an ability to explore and encourage a development of a human sexuality, they wouldn't have had to go through that process and wouldn't have had to go through it alone.
0: I think it's so interesting, too, how damaging and shameful and judgmental it is for primarily girls, but I think girls and boys, to do the analogy of, like, you know, here's this piece of gum. Everybody chew it. And yeah. now, you know, your husband isn't going to want this piece of gum because everybody yeah. in the room is chewed it. or yeah. like the flower, rip it up and now put it back together. You can never do that because it'll never be as pure. And yeah. I, just, I can only imagine how damaging that is.
2: And just think about even if it's somebody who that's damaging to people who have consensual sex, but. Elizabeth Smart was, like, the week that she was kidnapped, she had just gone to a a speech about purity, and they had done that metaphor of a chewed-up piece of gum. And so then she's kidnapped and she's raped, and it was so hard for her to even have the drive to leave because her thought was, nobody will want me now. I will never be able to get married. I'll be absolutely demolished as a Christian. God doesn't love me. All these things. And a lot of purity culture does not teach consent and does not talk about Mm -hmm. consent. So you have a huge issue of so many young women who they're sexually assaulted and the feelings that they're feeling are very much trauma symptoms, but a church member sees that. And if they can't spell out that it wasn't consensual, a church member sees that and says, oh, that's the Holy Spirit telling you that what you did is wrong and that you need to repent, like modesty. You shouldn't have been alone with that person in that car. Cause like we said, the purity culture would be everything from can't hold hands with that person. Oh, this just tells you one thing leads to another. And like sex, sexual sin is so tempting and you shouldn't have been with that person in that car. You shouldn't have been dating just to date. You should have had that man meet your father and get him to approve. And so you have this kind of cycle of women who don't realize that they're being sexually assaulted and then feel shame about it. And then also since There's all these things that, these rules that they broke, it's like, oh, God, I did something terribly wrong. And it's not until years and years later of deconstructing that they realized they didn't consent to that. They didn't want that. Those metaphors are really harmful to sexual assault victims. And think about if you were somebody who was sexually abused as a child and goes in and hears this speech, how do you feel encouraged to tell anyone? How do you feel encouraged to ever tell an adult or a future partner? Because you're a chewed up piece of gum.
0: Yeah, that's awful. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to maybe this idea that virginity is just a construct? Like, I believe it, but I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, so
2: surprisingly, I first heard about the idea that virginity was a construct in high school from an atheist. And he was talking about how we had a friend who was waiting until marriage, but she was, like, doing other things, like oral sex, things like that. And he was like, why are you doing that? And she was like, because it's not sex. And he was like, okay, so are you saying that if that's not sex, is a lesbian couple forever virgins? And that really twisted my mind because I was like, wait a second. Yeah, that's right. And the same thing with like a gay man. And it got to the point where when I was in college, there was a girl that I didn't know. I wasn't close friends with her personally. But allegedly, like, she would allow her boyfriend to do anal sex with her because she was like, That's not technically virginity. And so when you look at virginity as just being like penis, vagina, it's not a comprehensive look at the entire scope of sexuality because that's not possible for some couples. And also virginity is a construct because there's this idea of like, oh, the hymen is popped or whatever. That's not actually a biological thing that
0: happens. (laughs) So that's a construct too. That's so interesting and because there does that term like popping a cherry or it's like this sense of conquering for a man to conquer the virginity of a woman and then to the most extreme areas when you get into groups that do like female genital mutilation yeah and they like inspect females for their hymen that's not even that's not even a thing that's probably the farthest extreme reaches of it
2: the other thing I really realized is how hyper-focused when I was in a youth group, they were on virginity. When you have a word for virgin, somebody who's never had sex before, but you don't use those same metaphors of chewed up piece of gum or a crumpled up rose or whatever for somebody who lies, for example. You don't have a word for somebody mm. who's never lied before. And the entire concept of Christianity is about forgiveness and redemption and all these things, except with virginity, if you do it once, you're no longer pure. That is completely antithetical to the rest of Christianity. In Christianity, they say all sins are equal. There are no sins that are worse than one another because in the eyes of God, anything that's imperfect is impure yada yada. and needs to be redeemed and needs to be forgiven, except when it comes to virginity. And so there's an expectation that, oh, at some point in your life, you're going to lie. At some point in your life, you're going to maybe steal something. You're going to commit one of these sins because it's human nature. But... If you have sex one time or kiss a boy before marriage or all these things, like you're forever scarred and your relationship with your husband will be ruined. And also it's incredibly heteronormative. Like
0: it's never like you as a woman have to save yourself for your wife. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I heard there was a study done that teaching abstinence only education in schools actually doesn't reduce the amount of. Teen pregnancies or STIs. Correct. So, all sex education in the US is terrible. I want to preface by (laughs)
2: saying that. Something that I work in the sexual and domestic violence sphere, and something that we have seen is that regardless of if you do abstinence only sex education or what they call abstinence plus, which is we'll teach you about condoms and STDs and whatnot, but we're not going to actively encourage you to have sex. Those Two groups still have incredibly high rates of domestic and sexual violence because they're teaching kids about the scientific, if they don't get abstinence-only sex education, they're teaching kids about the science of sex, of this goes, here's condoms, birth control, different options. But they never teach somebody how to consent, what consent looks like, what a healthy relationship looks like, how, when you're a 12-year-old, do you ask someone out on a date? If you get asked out on a date, how do you say no without being mean? Those are all yeah. things that I think most teenagers really struggle with. And they don't, the only information they have about it is going to be things they see online or things they learn from friends. And so when we're not teaching kids about those fundamental aspects, sure, sex is important and it's important for people to have that education and that knowledge. But to know that neither side is comprehensively preventing any forms of violence that could be easily preventable if you just teach these kids communication skills, it just absolutely baffles me. The other thing is with abstinence only sex education, those kids are going to get that information somehow. The information is probably going to be wrong. (laughs) Yeah. And that's where the kids are learning things like, oh, if you have sex in a hot tub, you can't get pregnant or, oh, "Oh," like the number of times in middle school and high school that I had to correct somebody in terms of sex ed was laughable, absolutely laughable because people just don't know. Yeah, it's so funny to me that people say, oh, if we teach kids what it is and we teach kids about condoms, then they're going to want to have sex. Objectively untrue. How many yeah. times did you go to school and a teacher telling you about sex go, yeah, that's really, that's for me. That's like, <laughs> no, that's not how it works. That's like saying if we show kids a video of a car crash and teach them about the importance of wearing seat belts, they're going to drive more recklessly because they know the seatbelt will save them. No,
0: (laughs) that's illogical. Oh my God, that's such a
2: good analogy. And I wish I was kidding when I said, I think it was in the UK, when they were first trying to mandate seatbelts in cars, certain senators or MPs or whatever were arguing that, no, we shouldn't mandate them because people will drive more recklessly. And it's the same argument applied to sex ed.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. I still think we have a long way to go because at 14, I came out as lesbian before being put back in the closet and sent mm-hmm. to a Catholic school. But I That's had a so girlfriend. Classic. Yeah, classic. And I had a girlfriend and I had no sexual education on intimate partner safety no, in, in any respect. And so that was my education. And could it have been a lot? better. Yeah. Like, I want to see schools teaching about safe bodies and safe Mm -hmm. everything because it's going to happen.
2: Yeah, I think that's super important. And especially when it comes to being representative of queer identities and recognizing that, hey, if your entire sex ed is going to be based around male-female relations, people who don't see themselves in that are going to be completely left out. And they don't understand the violence of things, and I covered this a lot in my domestic violence prevention classes, things like if you're closeted and have a girlfriend and that girlfriend says, hey, if you break up with me, I'm going to out you, that is a form of domestic violence that can really like coerce somebody into a coercive control situation. And so often parents don't want to talk about it. 12-year-olds, and this was a study from like 2008, 12-year-olds. 92% 92% have already seen pornography.
0: And so, oh my God,
2: it's so interesting because parents are like, oh, we'll talk about it when we're older. We'll talk about it when you're older. What is pornography, if not going to teach you the worst forms of sex you possibly can? Sex that is degrading that rarely uses protection never asks for consent has all of these expectations and what we see is like this generation especially of young men who have these expectations of sex that are just not realistic they're actually absolutely fictitious The first time I saw pornography was not consensually. And I was eight years old trying to find the barbie.com website. And (laughs) that was the age of pop-up ads, And I'm like, what the heck is that thing? And like, I didn't go tell my parents what I saw because there was shame around it. Even though I didn't look for it, I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to get in trouble. So when you teach your kids that these conversations are off limits, that, oh, we'll talk about this when they're older. They're going to get into situations where it might be an adult who's grooming them. It might be in that kind of situation. It could be a situation with a friend or a family member where they say, oh, I can't talk to mom about that because she said we're not allowed to have those conversations. If you are not teaching your kids about consent and sex ed and healthy relationships, somebody else will. And you have to figure out what the consequences of those are.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting being of this age where we didn't talk about it in the home and we did receive a limited education at school that was very heteronormative and very just scientific, straight to the facts. Outside of Degrassi High, I think you guys said oh, that Oh, love States.
2: Degrassi. That was on Discovery Kids. And oh, I watched yeah. that show way younger than I should have.
0: Oh, yeah. I remember if we had a substitute teacher often, or if there was like a snow day, they'd like wheel in the TV and we'd watch an episode of Degrassi. And that, you like, allowed that? That's insane. Oh, yeah. That was like our Canadian education and it was like, yeah, I just think, I can't remember where I was going with that now. We're talking about education. Oh, so it's interesting oh. as a product of being raised like that, but having the belief and knowledge and like I'm passionate about not raising the next generation like that. But I still feel a sense of, like, shame or embarrassment. I don't know how to talk about it with kids, and I have two stepkids. I think it's not about having the perfect
2: conversation, right? I think it's about having a series of conversations. It's about making sure that your kid knows that, hey, you can ask questions, and I might not know the right answers to them. A lot of times I think people think wrongly about the sex talk, of something you Mm. give once and then you never talk about it again. But that should be a continual conversation. And it's not like, oh, at the dinner table, you're like, let's talk about this sex position. No, nobody's asking that. But I remember even a kid seeing things on the news about things like abortion or pregnancy conceived in rape. And I was like, this doesn't match the like depiction because my mom said that when two people love each other very much, this is what happens. And it's about creating a space where your kids can ask those questions when they're ready. And you don't have to unload when they're five years old and say, where do babies come from? You don't have to give an entire 10th grade level sex ed class. It's just yeah. got to be age appropriate. And it's got to let them know that even if you're uncomfortable, those conversations are important to you. Something yeah. I was going to say, too. So when I was in high school, the only sex ed we got, and I got it twice, we had a man called Jason Evert, And he Ooh. came to our high school. And I think I could be wrong. I think only the girls got this book, but I can't remember. They gave us a book called How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul, 21 Secrets for Women. Also, great title because in wow. Christianity, hey, you can't lose your soul. So you're saying you know, like, <laughs> that is ridiculous. So really high quality. But one of the metaphors, so we had this guy come and he spoke and he was trying to be like young and hip and all these things. And one of the things he did on stage is he would always get one of the football players, have the football player put on a wig. So it was like, oh, it's funny. And he would talk about sex as if going off a cliff. And so his big thing was like not only just not waiting to have sex until marriage, but also like these other forms of sexual interaction. And he's like, so often kids want to know, like, how close can I get to that cliff without going over it? And he's like, but if you're on a cliff, you should stay as far away from that cliff as you can. You don't want to be taking your girlfriend and he would take the football player with the wig on and hold him upside down and put him over the side of the cliff and be like, you don't want to hold your girlfriend like this. And I just remember that metaphor. And now looking back, I'm like, what an aggressive metaphor that, you know, you're holding someone, you're throwing someone off a cliff. That is absolutely sexual assault. And Um. I just flipped open a page. This is called The Walking Hormone. Very classic. During the teenage years, males can have 20 times more testosterone in their bodies than females have. For this reason, most girls probably think of teenage boys as and walking hormone are synonymous. Unfortunately, many women will testify that some adult men haven't grown out of this phrase. Then he goes on. The walking hormone has one thing in mind, self-gratification at the expense of women. To reach his goal, he'll often manipulate women with pressure or guilt. He may be congratulated in the locker room as a player, but he's nothing more than a slave to his weakness. Guys might use phrases such as, you're such a tease, if you'd love me, you'd show me, etc. Okay, this is horrible. Some walking hormones can be pretty creative in their tactics. For example, a newspaper article in California reported that a 28-year-old soccer coach manipulated several of his female players into sleeping with him. He showed them a red amulet filled with fluid and said that it was his life essence. It would dwindle if he did not have sex, and once it disappeared, he would die. Several of the young women believed him and slept with him. Thankfully, he was arrested, and now both he and his life essence are in prison. That is a 28-year-old raping high schoolers. And this is written with the perspective of, oh, these silly girls were manipulated. By this, while like most, they were fully assaulted. Yeah, while most guys won't try to convince a girl that abstinence is le- lethal to them, the walking hormone won't hesitate to make her feel like she's a cruel, heartless, and stingy prude for denying him his needs. If she's already done certain sexual things with him, he'll remind her as an attempt to convince her that it's not a big deal. In other words, her body isn't a big deal, and neither is her soul. So, if a man wants to sleep with you, he does not respect your body or your soul. If she respects herself, she has no choice but to dump him. In fact, the only way he'll stop using her is if she stops letting him. That is the sex education I got in high school. If you are being abused, if you are being sexually manipulated, if you are being raped by an older adult, the only way to get that to stop is to stop allowing it.
0: Yeah. That's atrocious.
2: Yeah, and I actually reached out to the author on Instagram. He did not care to to respond to my emails. Um,
0: Did you get a red receipt, but you didn't get...
2: I don't even remember. I think it was before red receipts happened. And I just saw screenshots and I was like, this was mortally harmful for me. Here's another example later on. These chapters are written both with his wife as well. But there's a chapter excerpt. This is called, I'm I'm trying to see. Oh, the chapter is called Grow a Backbone. Before explaining how you can grow a backbone, it's helpful to reflect on the consequences of choosing not to have one. The story of Jessica shows the radical outcome of a girl who never learned to say no. This is the girl speaking. Anyways, he was three years older than me at the time. We had really only seen each other twice and only for a brief 10 minutes each time before we had sex. I was drunk and stoned when I lost my virginity. I remember making myself get that way so that I wouldn't have time to say no to him and thus possibly lose him. I did it with him in one of my friend's houses, a strange place I had never been before. And I remember after he was done, I asked him to stay with me for just a few minutes and he said no, yada, yada. I tried calling him for about two weeks, but he always turned off his phone or wouldn't pick up. And finally, his friend picked up one day and told me that he was done with me. And if I didn't stop calling, she would break my face. That was the end of that. Afterwards, she went through a cycle of guys and eventually met one who seemed the sweetest of all. He pursued her for months and she finally gave in and slept with him. Then he stopped returning to her calls and text messages. She concluded, now it's more than obvious that he is bored with me. So, she was drunk and stoned when she lost her virginity. That is rape.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you can't give
2: consent. This author is saying she didn't have a backbone. The normal reaction, very common reaction when somebody is sexually assaulted, and part of the healing process is oftentimes somebody will try to sleep with multiple partners because they're trying to recreate a consensual experience so that they don't think, hey, every time. So if you think, hey, you're a virgin. And you're raped, even if you want to wait until marriage, the idea of, hey, I'm going to have to put up with this trauma that's associated with my body when I've been told, like, this is like a sacred part of me, this feels destroyed. I want to reclaim this in a way that's in my own terms. So it's very common for somebody after sexual assault to have a lot of sexual partners very casually just so that they can feel like, hey, I can do this consensually and I know what this looks like and I know what happened to me was not this. So he's looking at this girl who was clearly raped by somebody who was three years older than her when she was in high school and she was inebriated and stoned. And he's saying she doesn't have a backbone. Like, this is the sort of education that abstinence only education provides.
0: And who is this guy? What's his qualification on this? Qualification. He's a white man who waited until I was marriage. The-
2: Allegedly, and his wife, like. And his wife didn't, which is interesting.
0: And they still. So he chose a chewed up piece of gum. Yeah, he, tried, he never used those sorts of
2: metaphors, because he was like, she recommitted to her virginity, right. and was, it's all been great since then. So he was a little more progressive, ironically, than a lot of the other ones, Ooh. but it was still using those kind of metaphors. There's another popular writer who wrote in a book, when he was talking about dressing modestly, he said, if you dress like a piece of meat, don't be surprised when you get thrown down on the barbecue. What is going through these people's heads? There's even a chapter in this book, Technical Virgin, was my favorite book when I was in high school. And it's all about more than sex with before marriage. And it includes such a chapters as sex equals depression. But saying, only
0: if you're not married.
2: Correct. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you're finally getting it. There's also a thing about, let's see if I can find this. There's one that's about, oh, there's a section on female porn, which do you want to guess what female porn is? I'm, yeah, I can't. I don't, what is it? Chick flicks. Chick flicks are sexually immoral because they essentially, the idea is that, think about it like this. When guys watch porn, they get this image in their mind of the perfect woman, one who is more than likely totally different than the average girl and they start to expect sexual perfection. They dream of doing what they see on screen, and it perverts their thoughts about real girls. How many of us look and act like porn stars? So how is it any different from what we do with female porn? When we see or read romance, we begin to expect romantic perfection. We start to hold guys to higher standards. We want them to be our knights in shining armors who rescue us from our mundane lives and mean parents. We expect pure perfection out of them, and we get disappointed when that's not what we get. God forbid we as women raise our standards even an
0: inch. Oh my God. Here's another
2: one. Watching a chick flick can leave you feeling a rush of excitement over seeing the perfect man and the perfect romance. It's just as sexual to us girls as seeing a woman naked is to a guy. So beware, you are at your most vulnerable to slipping up sexually when you watch a good chick flick. That's because when you leave the theater, your guy can look really good. Your mind can trick you into believing that a 16-year-old male who doesn't have a job, still lives with his parents, and plays Xbox all day really is like Matthew McConaughey. Side note, I would be worried if you were dating a 20-year-old who has a job and (laughs) does not (laughs) live with his parents. Like, why are we... Every 16-year-old lives with their parents. Don't lie to yourself. You are feeling hot and bothered because of the flick, not because your date's Mr. Perfect.
0: Oh, my God.
2: There's also a section talking about how tickling is inherently sexual. And the logic they use with that is you don't see guys tickling each other. And a guy wouldn't tickle his grandma. That's because it's inherently
0: sexual. So
2: every time you tickle
0: a child. Oh, my God. I. Yeah. 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 So, have you ever heard of girl-defined ministries? Yes, of course, I have Bethany, and what's the other girl's name? Kristen, Kirsten, Kristen. yeah, I think I watch their videos and I am just in constant awe of the damage they are doing to the future generations because their whole thing is like their anti feminism. And they and, use the term like godly design or women in the biblical sense. and Yeah,
2: which is uh, is silly
0: because there is
2: no biblical woman. You want to know some examples of biblical women that are listed in Jesus's genealogy? Rahab, who was a sex worker. Ooh. We, ta- we have J.L. who killed a man with a tent post, stri- striking him in the back of the head. Who else do we have? Rahab. We have Ruth, who essentially sexually manipulated a man. We have Tamar, who was a rape victim, and she like got her brother to kill her rapist. There are all of these examples of women in the Bible that are literally biblical women, but they don't fit Bethany's standards. Um, There's a really good book by Rachel Held Evans, who was an incredible author. She passed a few years ago, and it's called A Year of Biblical Womanhood would highly recommend, even if you're not a Christian, it's very fascinating because she goes through and she tries to find every statement about what is a good wife in the Bible or what is a good woman. And so there are things like a good wife stands outside of the city and praises her husband. And so one day she goes out to the end of the city and she holds up a sign that says, go Dave. And then one's, <laughs> about, one's about being good at mending. And so like she learns to sew. And then there's like all of these different things that are like, listed as like things that a good wife is and it just goes to show that the modern concept of a biblical woman is just patriarchy infused with a couple of bible verses
0: so i have a controversial question it's not controversial to me but i feel like mary wasn't actually a virgin was she there's actually a really
2: interesting one of my old pastors dr katie hayes she has a couple of different podcasts where she has this sermon And she talks about the possibility of Mary not being a virgin and, in fact, being a victim of rape. She reads through the scripture, and it's a really beautiful interpretation. The idea is that this is beautiful because it shows that God can take something so horrible and still find divinity in it, right? There is still goodness in who she is despite her circumstances and her situation. So that's a interpretation that some Christians hold. You could have an interpretation that like the word virgin was often used interchangeably with a young girl. So that's important. And also the Catholic Church interprets that Mary never had sex again or never had sex her entire life. But she married Joseph. Correct. And they call it a Josephian marriage, which is a marriage that does not have sex, which it's so fascinating because with that sort of Catholic interpretation, it sets up such a unrealistic standard for women, if you're interpreting it that way. I don't want anyone to think that I'm like dogging on a specific <laughs> theology. But if you interpret it that way, Mary, who's the ideal of being a woman, she's a good mom, but she's also pure. She's a pure and virginal creature who's also a mother and had to give birth. It's an impossible standard to try yeah. to emulate and also we focus like so many churches focus so heavily on mary's virginity that does not really like it's one sentence in in scripture it's not every verse after that they're like mary who was a virgin that's not how... <laughs> like i think it's really sad because there are so many more interesting things about mary as a woman like the fact that christ's first miracle in scripture is when she's at a wedding. And she knows how incredible her son is, and he has not performed a miracle yet. She's at a wedding, and it's the turning water into wine. It's called the Wedding Feast at Cana. And she is the one who goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, fix this. We've run out of wine. And so we she's... need to turn
0: this party up. Exactly.
2: And so she's the one who initiates that. There's her holding her son's body at the cross and like this grieving and this mourning and picturing her dressing her son's wounds. There's so many depictions of Mary that are so beautiful and rich. And there's also metaphors that oftentimes theological traditions that are really stooped in male-only leadership neglect. For example, Christ, the entire idea of Christ's death and crucifixion, right, is Christ gave up his body for us and in that created new life and we can become new people by this suffering when mary gave birth like motherhood in its finest is like somebody giving birth through pain and suffering and creating new life and nourishing that body with her own body with breast milk and that Mm -hmm. is a beautiful metaphor and very rich and has such a three-dimensional element But oftentimes, Mary is just seen flat as this figure who's virgin and mom.
0: And that's it. That's so interesting.
2: Yeah, I feel really bad because a lot of times people assume that if they grew up in a church tradition that was steeped in this purity culture, steeped in this a lot of nonsense, they think there's nothing redeeming about Christianity or religion or organized church or whatnot. And there are so many beautiful feminist queer trans womanist, which is like a black female interpretation of the Bible. Creators, authors, pastors that have such a beautiful understanding of scripture that I think a lot of people miss out on because the loudest voices are the homophobic and misogynistic ones. I'm a big fan of Galileo Church Online and their their podcast as well, which has all of their sermons where they dive into things like, hey, what does it mean to the fact that there's slavery in the Bible? What does that mean? Can we reconcile it anyway? What does the Bible say about finances? Because you see like Jesus, who's somebody who said, give up all of your possessions to serve the poor. And then you have mega churches that are asking you for money to buy a private jet. Like these people who are using this scripture, they're using it to whatever they want to say. And you can take scripture and have it say whatever you want. You can use any interpretation. Some are more valid than others, obviously, but there's a lot of really beautiful theology of liberation and feminism and humanity that people don't frequently see. The people who first saw Jesus's empty tomb were all women, and none of the men believed them because they were women. And Jesus came back. Yeah. Jesus came back and is like, hey guys, you're assholes. (laughs) Yeah, And the Jesus I worship is table flipping Jesus who saw in the temple, they're selling all of these like animals to sacrifice. And he's like, this is ridiculous. Like this shouldn't have to buy your way into heaven. And so he literally flips the tables. That's the Jesus I worship.
0: I'm a table flipping
2: Jesus girl.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So I guess to wrap it up, I don't <laughs> know if it wraps up, but what do you think the impact of, so last time we talked Roe versus Wade was still mm-hmm. a thing and now it is not. So how does this like purity culture, lack of sex education, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, I just don't see it going well. No. So the mm-hmm. long and short of it is, I don't know how that's going to go.
2: So America, how it is right now with the policies we have now, are horrible and it's really easy even for me to get really down about the state of the world. And every day there's a new mass shooting and it's exhausting. Every day there's horrible police brutality. Every day it's restricting rights of women. But the thing I try to hold on to, Mr. Rogers always said, look for the helpers, right? And I see these women who are coming together and having WhatsApp group chats where they're getting women pregnancy-ending pills through these encrypted services. Women who are in their 80s, who are going out and protesting and being a part of, part of these movements. We finally have people who are in Gen Z who are running for Congress and running for these elected positions and holding people accountable. There's all these articles about how Gen Z is really shaking up the job market because they've said, hey, we're not going to apply to jobs that don't have their salary listed. A, a wave is coming and hopelessness is not the answer. And I think that there are, there are really good people doing a lot of good things to turn the tides. My hope is that in shedding a light through my TikTok, on a lot of the inconsistencies in theology. I think it's absolutely fine if your theology is to wait to have sex until marriage. Totally fine. I don't think it's okay for you to use language that is A, not biblical, B, not logical, and C, is harmful to sexual assault victims, queer people, et cetera, in trying to defend your theological stance. So my hope is that when I get people who are on my page who wanna yell and argue and debate, Sure, you can hold whatever theological belief, but make sure that you're using language that is not harmful and that is inclusive of these other peoples because otherwise you're going to cause trauma and those people will never come back to any church, not just your church, any Church. church. And in the Bible, they say that the unforgivable sin, the only unforgivable sin is essentially causing someone to stumble in their faith to God. And I believe that these mega pastors who are trying to scam people out of money, people who are telling women that their bodies are worth nothing because they've had sex or been raped. That is the unforgivable sin. And yeah. Christians really need to start thinking about what is worth the fight. Is there one viewpoint on sex and sexuality really that important in the scheme of who Christ was? Do you know what Jesus said about sex before marriage? Nothing. Nothing. Do you know what Jesus right. said about gay people? Nothing. Jesus talked far more about divorce than he did gay people, but you don't see people who are protesting on the street saying divorcees are going to hell. And so I think, like, I, my hope is that I can be one of those good people who can both show people who feel excluded from the church that, hey, just because the church excluded you does not mean that you aren't allowed to have a spiritual connection. And on the flip side, that if you have somebody who was me when I was 16, who live and die by these purity books, that they can look at this from a new angle and say, hey, maybe I need to rethink some of the ways I'm arguing my beliefs.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) I love that. And where is the best place for people to find you online? Definitely is on TikTok. It's going to be
2: at deconstruct underscore with underscore page i'm hoping to maybe start moving stuff onto another platform i'm deciding because i'm very worried about tiktok i just crumbling why
0: what's happening
2: so there's been like some moves colleges are like blocking people from using tiktok on wi-fi and then the tiktok's not allowed in like the capital area because they're worried about privacy concerns with china because it's a Chinese company, which also my question, and I'm dumb as rocks on this subject, so I have no idea. My question is, how is this any different than Facebook stalking me? Is the issue that it's like a Chinese company versus an American company? Like, I don't really understand what could come out of that isn't already coming out of all the other apps, but I'm hoping to move on to either YouTube Shorts or Instagram Reels, but I haven't really decided yet because TikTok
0: is my place. Thank you so much. I love all your videos. It always gets me thinking and like also enraged and wanting to smash the patriarchy a little bit more. Flip those tables. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. If I was going to be a, like a religious person, I would be a Jesus flipping tables person. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking again.
2: Yes, let's totally do it. Maybe next time, year from now, call me back. I just got a new job. I'm developing sexual <laughs> violence curriculum, prevention curriculum yes. for people with disabilities. So next time we can talk about disability and
0: sexual violence. Because this is another thing. Like, literally, I could just talk about this for hours. Because it also doesn't talk about, like, differently abled, bodied. Absolutely not. Like, sexual experiences. No. Yeah. I'm fired up about it. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day in Nashville. And we'll talk really soon. Talk soon. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media, share this podcast with your friends, and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com/i did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content, and ad-free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com/i did not sign up for this. Join me next week when I talk with Lindsay Austin, an executive coach with over 15 years in human resources and leadership. We talk motherhood, being an ally, body positivity, and how to show up and hold space for the people in our village. I hope you have a fantastic week ahead, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much.